I think the first thing and the thing I want to reiterate to my listeners is that body fat being more than what is required by our body for the situation it is in, and I'm going to clarify all of those things, is a symptom of a problem, not the problem. Now, in very simplistic terms, in many cases, if somebody's eating the standard American diet and, you know, maybe they're not paying attention to what they eat and they're stopping and eating fast food on a regular basis, at a very, very fundamental level, if you look at observational studies and also clinical studies looking at actual dietary data, I'm not a fan of long-term observational studies because any questionnaire that asked me what I ate two weeks ago on Thursday is going to be inaccurate, right? Those are not great. Welcome to the Menopause Mastery Podcast, a show for women just like you who are ready for more health, vitality, passion, living life with a purpose. I created this show because I knew that women just like me in this second season of life, the season of menopause, are really tapping into their deepest desires. And we're ready to harness our physical and mental health and explore what our true passions are and peel back the layers to uncover exactly what we want out of life. I'm your host, Betty Murray, part geek, part magician, and your new medical bestie with a dash of sass. I love taking the complex science and making it easier to integrate into daily life. So let's join the journey to make this season the best ever. Have you been feeling off? You know what? Your hormones might be out of whack. Take my quiz to discover your personalized hormone imbalance and get a free report with your results. Learn what's really going on with your hormones and start feeling like yourself again. Just visit the website quiz.hormoneshelp.com to take the hormone quiz now. Welcome back to Menopause Mastery. So today I am going to talk about the seven things you need to do to burn fat this year. So every year, right, we're starting off 2024 and many people are creating their New Year's resolutions or intentions and nine times out of 10, body composition changes are part of that conversation and especially body fat. And I'm gonna make some clarification around body weight, body fat and the things that I find important here. And so I'm gonna go through some of the things that I think everybody can do right now that can help just sort of kickstart this activity. So kickstart that fat burning capacity and get your metabolism revved up a little bit. You know, so the first thing I want to really talk about is the misnomer, and especially from the medical community, that leads us all to believe that being overweight, carrying extra body fat, that in of itself is the problem, right? You get told that all the time. Doctors like, oh, your cholesterol's high, or oh, your blood pressure's high, or oh, whatever's going on. If you just lost weight, then it would go down, right? If you hear it, I hear it almost every day that somebody has told a patient that. And the simple fact is that damn simple, we would have one diet and that would be easy and we would all do it and everybody would result in weight loss and we wouldn't have an obesity epidemic. So I think the first thing and the thing I want to reiterate to my listeners is that body fat being more than what is required by our body for the situation it is in, and I'm going to clarify all of those things, is a symptom of a problem, not the problem. 
right? Now, in very simplistic terms, in many cases, if somebody's eating the standard American diet and, you know, maybe they're not paying attention to what they eat and they're stopping and eating fast food on a regular basis, at a very, very fundamental level, if you look at observational studies and also clinical studies looking at actual dietary data, I'm not a fan of long-term observational studies because any questionnaire that asked me what I ate two weeks ago on Thursday is going to be inaccurate, right? Those are not great. But when we're looking at true studies, we know statistically that we are eating hundreds of calories more than our counterparts did just a couple decades ago. Our actual size of serving when we eat out in particular has gone up, our plates have gotten larger, and so therefore our visual cues for what we're eating is significantly higher. So I think probably the most important thing to know is not that I would ever eat this, but a kid's Happy Meal is actually an adult-sized portion. And, you know, when McDonald's first opened up, I hate to break it to you, that was the adult cheeseburger and fries and a drink dose, right? And so now we get the super big gulp and then we got the, you know, supersized fries and whatever burger that you got going on. And obviously it's huge. Now, I know none of my listeners, I know you guys don't, don't eat that, right? But the reality is there is a caloric situation where we could be just overeating, right? Overeating what our expenditure is. And that expenditure is your basal metabolic rate plus your activity level on top of it. But in order for us to fix that, we got to correct some of the underlying metabolic causes for the weight gain to begin with. So caloric deficit is part of that, right? But then the question becomes, what does that deficit come from, right? And I think a lot of times this is where it gets confusing because sometimes the things we are told to do actually make some of the other behavioral components harder. So for instance, starting an exercise program. Back in our 20s, I would say most of us when we were in our teens and 20s, we could probably work off a pretty crappy diet. Like I hear it all the time. People say, well, you know, when I was in high school, I was thinner, you know, up until, you know, middle, let's say junior year of college, I was thinner, but I worked out and I was doing intramural exercise and I was busy and I did all this stuff, right? So when you're younger like that and you have, you know, you're not working 60 hours a week and taking care of family members and trying to get your life done, you know, your expenditure of effort relative to your intake was probably much greater than it is today, right? So when I am, as I'm talking to adults and adults now, we're not going to look at what you did at 20 because that was too damn long ago and you're a different body today, right? So let's get into it. Let's talk about it. So the first thing I think is really, really important is I want to clarify the difference between weight loss and fat loss. Right, so when you look at studies online, right, so if you happen to read the research, I read a lot of research, I love reading research, I actually don't even let myself look at research in the evening because I know I will end up down some crazy biochemistry rabbit hole. Like I will just keep searching and searching and searching and I can't get to sleep. So I read stupid romance novels at night because that helps me, you know, not get kind of tied up into my intellectual pursuits. But What's really, really important here, and when you look at the research, is to understand the difference between fat loss and weight loss. In traditional studies, unless they're looking at body composition specifically, they consider weight loss a win, right? So I'm going to give a real example of stuff that's very popular today, Ozempic and Terzepatide, or Wagovi, semaglutide. Those studies showed an extraordinary amount of weight loss in a relatively short period of time, right? Upwards of 30 pounds. Weight, right? Not fat, Right. The biggest concern about those drugs is an average of like 34 pounds lost, 27 of it, I believe, was muscle mass. That is never good. It is never good to lose a large percentage of muscle mass when you're losing weight. Now, if you have 30, 40, 50 pounds to lose, you will lose some muscle as you're no longer carrying around that much weight. 
but the percentage of what you lose, you want to hold muscle mass as long as possible. So one of the first things I think is super important this year, if you want to get healthier and you want to see things, you need to know where you start right? Things that get measured get changed and things that get identified and consistently measured are easier to change. So my recommendation is get a scan of one of these two types of scans. If you live in a bigger metropolitan area, there are DEXA scanning devices in many big cities that do bone density, but they also do body composition. Now you are getting exposed to very low level of radiation, so it's not you're going to do every month. But it would be a great thing to do to go get a your bone density. If you listened to two weeks ago, I had an entire conversation about osteoporosis. But it's also really important because it can also figure out your body fat composition, which is very, very important. It's to be able to tell us where the body fat is, to what degree and what percentage of your body composition is fat. Because the truth is your BMI, which is your body mass index, which is just a height to weight ratio is not a real valid measure, right? If I'm speaking to 300 people, it could help me generalize the data. But the reality is what I want to know is my percentage body fat, 25%, is it 28%, is it 30%, is it 35% of my entire body weight, right? How much is it? So just to make it easy, if I were a 100 pound person and 30 pounds of that is fat, I'm 30% body fat, right? So I want to know because that tells me, hey, I am carrying more body fat than what I want, right? We want that body fat number in the low 20s and high teens for a woman, right? If you get very low, like if you get below 18% body fat, you're going to probably start seeing some hormone problems, right? Lower isn't necessarily always better, right? And actually, I can tell you from the longevity studies, being super, super lean and underweight or pushing that underweight, especially if you don't have the muscle mass, is actually worse than if you're carrying a little extra padding, honestly. So what we want to know is, number one, what is the body fat percent? I don't care what the total weight number is. I want the composition, right? Mr. Universe and Miss Universe or any of those bodybuilding contests, usually they are considered obese by weight. And then body composition, they have very low body fat, right, which makes them healthier, so I want to know that. So the DEXA can give you that. It can also give you where it's distributed. So is it predominantly in the abdomen? Is it in your butt and thighs and truncal area? Is it around your abdomen area almost exclusively and you've got very little on your legs? Because where it, it resides can tell you the, the degree of concern, right? Abdominal fat, particularly the abdominal fat that is underneath the jiggly bits on the outside, Right, so the stuff that's underneath the muscle that makes it feel like it's kind of hard, almost like a pregnant belly, that is way more dangerous for us than to have it on the hips and thighs and butt, right? And women as a whole, we tend to carry more subcutaneous fat. So we carry more of the fat that's on the surface area that is, let's say, more bumpy and lumpy, right? But it is less dangerous because it is less pro-inflammatory because it is not wrapping around organs. So you want to know a, where that is. So if you don't have access to a DEXA, many locations have a bioimpedance analysis device. And there's different versions of this. Professional bioimpedance devices, or BIAs, help you understand very similarly. They basically send a small electrical charge through the body, through the hands, through the feet. And as it moves through muscle, because there's more water contained in your muscle than there in fat, it actually moves faster, right? So we can tell by the level of impedance what the fat percentage is, right? So we can say this has got more fat or less fat. It can also tell us hydration level. It can tell us how much water is inside the cell, how much water is outside the cell, and whether you're well hydrated or not, or is 
there a lot of like inflammatory activity? Because a lot of times when we're overweight, again, overweight is the symptom, not necessarily always the cause. There's a lot of inflammatory cytokines, right? So if you looked at, you know, the virus that we were, (laughs) almost said impounded, the virus that we were quarantined for for so long, one of the major risk factors for complication was being obese or overweight. It's because they are already chronically inflamed because that fat cell, particularly the over-engorged flat cell, and especially the ones that are around the visceral fat, are very metabolically active. They make a bunch of hormones, and they make a bunch of inflammatory cytokines. And when they do that, we also end up storing water around all of our cells, right? So think of it as kind of like a moat around each cell, sort of trying to protect it. Well, it makes you have a lot of inflammatory water weight. And, and it also makes you feel very fleshy and sort of, you know, people say, well, I feel like I'm swollen all the time. A lot of that is that inflammatory weight. And if you ever watched any of the shows like The Biggest Loser at our clinic, we would get invited to send people over to audition. And I was like, I'm never going to send anybody to audition for that show. It was horrible. You know, but they were looking for a particular metabolic kind of profile because those people would drop all this weight very quickly because they were so inflamed there was so much water weight lost that you would see these extraordinary weight changes right but it was really just the change in inflammation so if you can get to a bioimpedance or a DEXA device you can actually see the body composition right and that tells us a lot again like I said if I've got a trim waist and not a lot of visceral fat underneath the muscle but I've got a little extra junk in my trunk in my butt and thighs I may not like it but it isn't as dangerous for my risk for heart disease, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, you know, you name it, right? My disease risk goes down. So I think it's important to get measured so you actually have some data. Because one of the things that often happens is as we start to get more metabolically flexible, as we're able to get more metabolically sound, sometimes the number on the scale doesn't move that much. But all of a sudden, the clothes start fitting differently. And I remember when I first started really messing with my hormones and really kind of digging in what I was looking at in my PhD research. And I was like, okay, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try that. I remember the first thing is my weight didn't change that much, but all of a sudden my pants were loose. Like I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I never wore a belt. Cause let's face it, the damn things are uncomfortable. And I was like, I don't want to draw attention to my waistline. So we'd never wear belts. And I remember I was like, damn, I'm going to have to wear a belt because my pants are too loose, right? (laughs) Like around my waist that I was losing inches, but my number on the scale literally had not changed. So that meant a lot, right? That means that something was changing in the body, even though the weight itself didn't move yet, right? And let's face it, you wouldn't care what that number said on the scale as if you loved what you looked like, right? And, And you knew you were healthy. At the end of the day, the number itself doesn't matter. It's the composition. That's why I think it's so important. So you want to get a bioimpedance device. There are several available ones for home use. Uh, Tanita makes one. There's Withings makes another one. There's several. I can actually put a couple of them on the notes so you can see them. I have no affiliate with them. They're just helpful. They're not quite as accurate as what we have in clinic, right? Because what we have in clinic are used in research data and other things. But it can be helpful. Hey there, are you over 40 and finding that a good night's sleep feels like a distant dream? Have no fear, I have cracked the code. I am offering a free ebook, A Woman's Guide to Kick-Ass Sleep, with insights tailored just for you. So if you're ready to dive into the secrets of sound sleep after 40 and wake up refreshed, zip over to sleep.hormoneshelp.com and snag that ebook. Your dreamy sleep awaits. 
Now, some of the things that you want to do before you do these types of tests is you want to have cleared out bowels, you've not wanted to eat, you want to do them ideally in the morning after you're well hydrated and be well hydrated the day before because your body actually stores water in the muscle and so it, it gives a better and more accurate read of what the true body composition is. If you go in dehydrated, you're actually going to look fatter than you really are. Right, so that's gonna give us all that data and it can give us segmental things like, so where is it in the legs and everywhere else so we can be really targeted about what we're doing. So I think getting measured is most important. So that's ideal. So the other things I'm gonna talk about today are some things that most of us think about, but there's two that I consider almost the most important. And these are things that we do when we do my challenge. I'm actually, I'm gonna invite you guys to my challenge and you can do it to help you lose the next five pounds because I can tell you five pounds of fat takes up a lot more space than five pounds of muscle, right? They both weigh five pounds. The weight itself is the same. It's the distribution or the space in which it takes up. And so, you know, you can picture in your head, we've all picked up a five pound weight, how small and compact that is. Now, a five pound model of fat or five pounds of fat is significantly more than that. It's almost a little bigger than like a loaf of bread, right? So it's about the size of a regular loaf of bread. That's the same, right? So the same five pounds. So at the end of the day, we want to hold on to that muscle we want to know. So we want to see it. So number two is, when I look at why we might have this metabolic damage, I've been talking about this for over a year, but a big part of it is our stress chemistry and our body's response to that stress and what it's perceived in the brain as and then how the body responds with hormones, right? And you've probably heard me talk about this, but our stress chemistry, cortisol, raises your glucose in the bloodstream in the short term, therefore raises insulin. And so cortisol, your stress chemistry, is going to raise insulin in tandem, right? And we are chronically living in this environment. And so again, most of us are going to have to get well in an environment they very well may be making us sick. I'm recording this. I had the intentions to record it over the weekend. My mom fell and broke her arm. And so my weekend was really taken up dealing with that. So I was like, okay, I got to record this. Now I'm recording it on a day that I work. I still have patient emails to respond to. I've got like all these other things. So the reality is you have a life just like mine. The, the reality is we never have a perfect time. So we have to find a way to do things that help lower this because we don't have that ideal scenario. And so this is a place to put things like meditation, right? Visualization, breathing, breath work. If you've never taken somatic breath work, somatic breath work is awesome, right? Because what it does is it basically turns off all of those things, turn off your sympathetic drive, which helps you lower cortisol and turn on parasympathetic drive and lets you pair and sort of pair up your autonomic system so it can regulate again. Because if you're in the chronic stress state, you're never in a relaxed state. You can't really digest. Your hormones are getting a message all the time and all of your organs are getting the message that life isn't safe or fair and that I'm at risk right now of something bad, so I need to watch for it, right? So we become hypervigilant and then our entire system of stress chemistry is elevated. And I think it's so very important. So number two is get still, right? And most of us, this is what we actually need to do is we need to take a moment and get still right? And we need to breathe. And we need to like allow the brain to sort of slow down. For some people, visualization does that. For some people watching the breath and doing just rhythmic breath, it could be box breathing, you know, inhale to four counts, exhale to four counts. They do that with the Navy SEALs. It has an extraordinary impact on stress response. 
You know, for other people, it might be doing coordinated breath work and taking and listening to a, a breath work scenario. For others, it might be doing some slow yin yoga, which are, you know, held yoga poses. I taught yoga for 10 years that help you just kind of turn on that nervous system. One of the things I love to do is legs up the wall as a yoga pose. It's, you know, you basically lay on your back, you scoot your butt up against the wall and you put your legs up against the wall. You might put a little blanket underneath your hips to elevate the hips slightly. I'll even put a rolled up towel underneath my neck so I get a little bit of cervical sort of support. And, you know, I'll even put little sandbags in my hands and cover my eyes and chill out for a few minutes, right? And help the body slow down. And the best time to do these things are especially in the evening so you can help slow down and get into a more relaxed state at sleep. I could talk about a thousand other things with sleep, but stillness is really important. And one of the ways you can really measure this, because again, I'm talking about all these great measurement things, is look at heart rate variability. I happen to wear an aura ring, right? But they've got whoops and you've got iWatch and all these things that can track heart rate variability. And essentially what the heart rate variability is, especially when you're sleeping, is your heartbeats aren't perfectly balanced, right? So they don't, you know, you, you hear them, the don't, don't, but they have this variability when the system is on parasympathetic drive. So they start to look more wildly erratic, but not in a bad way. That means that there's, the stress is down. And so the heart is sort of, think of it, I, this is how I think of it. When the heart is stressed out, it's like a horse running at full force, right? And even if it slows down, the cadence is tight, right? You know, so if you were to look at it as a wave, there's not a lot of like highs and lows. It's a very tight wave, if that makes sense. If you were to like draw out a wave on the, on the paper, it's, it's a very short wave. Whereas if I'm in parasympathetic drive and I've got a lot of variability, it's almost like a loping run right? Where all of a sudden it goes up, it goes down, it goes up a little bit, goes up and down and it fluctuates. And that shows that the heartbeats themselves have variability and that I'm in this recovered state. Well, I can tell you my HRV generally isn't very high. Now, here's the other thing is you don't want to compare your HRV to someone else's because there's no comparability. And so basically you have to know what your HRV is when it's good you know what yours is when it's bad and you know when it's changing. But like I can't compare mine to my husband's. We have very different HRVs and it's just not comparable between people. But once you know your HRV and you kind of know, hey, this is when I'm in a stress state, this is what it looks like, then I can start working on doing things to get that HRV into a more rhythmic, you know, sort of loping gallop instead of a full out tilt run, right? So when I do that, that gives me a measure to know I'm there. Meditation is great for this, right? Whether it's listening to a guided meditation. I am somebody that definitely has squirrel brain just like anybody else and my brain wants to run amok. I do a lot that has either a visualization along with it, like Vishen Lakhiani's six-phase meditation with Mind Valley. I love Dr. Joe Dispenza. I listen to a lot of his meditations. I find them to be very advantageous. So you could definitely find your, your meditation of choice. And I do meditation often in the morning, right? I do a little bit at night, but I also do it in the morning because that helps sort of set my day. So to get still, you got to do those things. You can't think about them and make them happen. You have to do them. Now, number three is to get moving, right? So if we have to create a little bit of a caloric deficit, we want to move, right? Because for most of us, we end up going to a job in many cases or doing something where we're sitting all day, right? All day, all the time. So our actual energy expenditure is pretty low. 
and the other part of it is it kind of shuts off the nervous system when you sit, right? When you're not standing, walking, moving, it sets off the nervous system. So it even affects vasal vagal response and the kind of gut brain connection. And so we want to move more, but we don't want our movement to be the greatest form of punishment, right? Most of us go to exercise and we are punishing ourselves for either what we wanted to do or what we did. Right? So we just want to move more. And that just means starting to find a way to find joy in the movement of your body. Right? We are a physical animal. It, like I love to watch my dogs in the morning because they wake up and they go running out and they immediately run around and play. Every morning they play like they're A, it's super joyful to be awake. And B, it's super joyful to be in their body and awake. Right? And we should wake up with the same sort of enthusiasm. You know, We don't think about moving our body just to move right? Just to move and be joyous in the body, not to abuse it, right? Because the other thing that happens is when we turn around and we go, okay, I'm going to try and lose weight by working out more. What's the thing that happens? Studies show this is often what happens is our hunger goes up, right? It's particularly in the short term because we're expending more energy. Our metabolism isn't as robust as it was. We have a lot of like, you know, sort of adaptation that has to happen. So often our hunger goes up in tandem with the additional exercise, Right. So going out there and hitting it full tilt and hitting it as hard as possible to, you know, basically work off what you ate isn't a great way to do it. What I'd rather have you think about is go, how can I move my body in a state of joy? You know, even doing ecstatic dance, if anybody's ever been to an ecstatic dance experience or even like a Tony Robbins event, you know, like there is so much dancing going on. And I don't know about you, but I love to dance. Now, I don't get many opportunities to do it outside of events like parties, you know, I do go to some pretty neat parties with some of my colleagues. But at the end of the day, we don't have a lot of opportunity to do that. So even if it's putting on a set of headphones and just moving your body to your favorite dance music, that just starts to get you in your body. It also helps tell that stress chemistry, hey, this is what I'm supposed to be doing with it. I need to be doing something physical. Do it, right? Don't be freaking my brain out and keeping me all wound up while I'm sitting in my chair all day, let me give it something physical to go with. So number three is get moving, but don't use it as an obligatory beat down because you need to lose weight. Okay, so number four. Now, if we look at food composition, right? The things that we know we shouldn't eat, we just really shouldn't eat, right? At the end of the day, we should be eating whole foods as they come from the planet. So how Mother Earth grows them, right? So we don't grow pasta, we don't grow toast, we don't grow cookies and crackers and all those other things, right? Food in its natural form, the closer we get to how it comes from the planet, right? That includes animal protein. So if I don't cure it, salt it, do a bunch of heavy chemical, smoke it, right? If I don't smoke it, those things, if I leave it closer to its natural form, the less denatured it is, the better it is for us, right? And it's the processing and the eating of food stuff, right? That has been removed and stripped away the micronutrients, the other nutrients like your vitamins and minerals, your fiber content, the stuff that actually make things spoil, right? Because when you strip that stuff out, all you're left with is the crap and that stuff doesn't spoil, which is why they do it, right? If you can have a bread loaf sit on the shelf for two months, there's very little food value left in it, very little, right? So if I eat foods in its natural form and remove the processing, number one, I'm getting the fiber and other things and the vitamins and minerals, and so I'm actually getting the nutrients the body wants. I'm also not getting all those toxins that are in the foods, especially if it's processed, that turn on the hunger centers of the brain and dysregulate your appetite and turn on the dopamine pathways and addiction pathways. 
all that food stuff, right? All of that food stuff is designed by big food to make you big drugged out, right? Big pharma and big food are both in cahoots <laughs> to make sure that you stay what I call a franchise player, buying and using but not dying, right? So at the end of the day, if you want to get healthier, we got to quit giving our money to Nabisco and all of these big food companies and eat foods in its natural form, right? So if I start to pull out processed foods, even if I'm not really concerned with the composition of the foods, I'm automatically going to be healthier, automatically going to be healthier. And what that does mean is that I'm also going to get a lot more fiber and a lot more vegetables and healthy fruits in their natural form, right? So there's a lot of excitement around like carnivore diet. And believe me, I've read the research and I've read a lot of things, but here's the reality. Our microbiome controls us. We are just barely scratching the surface of that. And the compounds in your food, particularly fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, legumes and whole grains, although I'm not a fan of all grains, but let's say the composition of all those foods, the fiber content and the carbohydrate content in these foods that are resistant starches feed your microbiome. And then they make things that are either positive or negative for us. For instance, your microbiome influence GLP and GIP, which are what Wagovi and Terzepatide work on, okay? So at the end of the day, maybe if our microbiome was healthier, we wouldn't have to use drugs to try and manipulate those pathways to help with weight loss, All right? So our microbiome needs to be fed. So if I eat a lot of vegetables and fruits and nuts and seeds that contain a lot of fiber and also contain the polyphenols, so those antioxidants that exist in those foods are the food source also for these microbes, particularly the healthy ones. So if I'm giving those to them, they're going to grow right? They're going to grow and proliferate and make good things like our acromancia, mucinophilia actually influence GLP, right? So maybe our gut microbiome needs to be healthier. But if I take out fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, polyphenols for my diet, yes, I can get all my vitamins out of liver and organ meat and I can get what I need out of animal protein, but that does not mean my microbiome is getting what it needs, right? And many people that remove those foods and feel better, it is because they have a really messed up microbiome and their digestion's messed up, right? It's not necessarily something that I think that we should be living on all time. Just because we can doesn't mean we should, right? When we have the opportunity to eat stuff that actually provides a lot of value to the body. So when we look at that, I want to really concentrate on things that grow above ground, I could get super technical and give you all the names of all the foods, but just think of it this way. If the plant is growing above ground, it's going to be very high in nutrient value, very relatively high in fiber, very low in actual calories and carbohydrates, right? So leafy things, tomatoes, zucchinis, squash, all of those are very low in carbohydrate content. So they've got nutrient density without caloric density. So I want to focus on those as my primary player foods. So that's just an easy way to think about it. Potatoes, sweet potatoes, yams, beets, those all grow down in the ground. They're still healthy, but they're higher in starch, right? So I focus on those. And then clean proteins, right? So I had a conversation two weeks ago, no, this last week, talking about amino acid metabolism and how it may be altered in people who are overweight or have been overweight and that we might have to look at this a little differently if it's somebody that has maybe gained a few pounds but has not been overweight for a significant period of time or hasn't really yo-yoed. 
you know, ultimately, if you didn't listen to that, uh, if you've been overweight for a longer period of time or have spent a lot of time yo-yoing, you may have some differences in how you metabolize proteins into amino acids and what your body does with them. However, what the resounding research shows is that if I eat protein in place of carbohydrates and in place of fats, what essentially happens is there's usually a caloric deficit because you feel fuller right? Proteins we have to get. They are essential. We must use them because that's what our body uses to make things. So I want to make sure I get my protein. You have to have protein. We can't survive without it. And if I eat my proteins first, so if I go, okay, I'm going to eat my protein, make sure I consume that and then eat all my vegetables, right? In that order, it also slows gastric emptying, right? Which is the other thing that semaglutide does. It actually slows gastric emptying. So at the end of the day, my stomach feels fuller longer. So if I eat my serving of protein, and again, it does not have to be like I live in Texas. It does not have to be a 12-ounce steak. That's not necessarily what we need to do. If you're not heavily hitting the gym, lifting weights a lot, you probably can't do enough muscle protein synthesis to use that to make muscle. But if I replace calorie for calorie, you know, maybe my processed foods or my starchy foods and put protein in, I'm going to be satiated longer. I'm going to be, my stomach's going to feel full longer and I'm going to have a better metabolic effect because I won't eat as much, right? So generally speaking, the studies show when people eat protein and especially, and they replace something that was probably carbohydrate, they tend to eat less and feel satiated longer, right? So in most cases, you're looking at, you know, before you cook it, four or five ounces of protein. Doesn't necessarily need to be truckloads, but you need to consume it. And most of the time when I run into women, either end of the spectrum, they're either not getting any protein at all, or it's very low, or it's really, really high and they might be overeating it and still having the carbs and other things and they're getting this metabolic effect that is ineffective. So if I clean it up and I eat clean proteins, that means you're grass-fed, you know, wild, ethically raised, not factory farmed and fed corn because they have a completely different composition of fat when that happens. Or, you know, clean, wild-caught fish. You know, if you do eggs, you know, free-grazing chickens and ducks, you want to eat clean protein. Right? And then I want to make sure that at least half of my plate is vegetables that are grown above ground. It doesn't have to be cooked. It could be raw. It could be either one. I need to get a lot of those. If I fill up on those two things, I'm going to get an extraordinary change to my metabolic activities. Right? I'm going to see a, a better insulin control. I'm, and especially if I've also reduced a little bit of, of fat as well because that causes a caloric deficit. Because I think most people don't realize how much fat they consume. I'm not fat phobic at all, and I'm definitely not promoting a, a low fat diet, but a teaspoon of fat is 45 calories. Teaspoon, not tablespoon, teaspoon, right? So it's very easy to get a ton of fat calories very quickly. And then if I'm still having the carbs on top of it now, I'm probably going to have more calories than what I really wanted. And I don't even know that I did it, right? So in the beginning, we want to look at that, you know, high vegetable, high fiber content, and then those clean proteins. And then, you know, really, so... Again, I want to do my number seven is this, cultivate discipline. We don't like being told what to do, right? And I say, especially now at this age, I really don't like being told what to do. But here's the reality. You have to tell you what to do, right? And the only way to develop a habit is to create the discipline to force yourself to do stuff you don't want to do, right? If we waited for motivation and we waited to feel like it, we would never get anything done. And so at the end of the day, that's not valuable to you. Right? So in order for us to, to make change and feel better, we have to make changes in what we're doing, which requires us to work the muscle of discipline 
because discipline then gives you freedom for the other things that you want. So if I become more disciplined about how I eat and how I manage my stress and prioritizing maybe my self-care or you know prioritizing prepping for food, the people who are really successful, like on my hormone reset that dropped 35 pounds in 12 weeks, feel great and they continue to keep it off. Number one, they learn the rules to help regain metabolic flexibility. Number two is they work the plan and they develop discipline. And that also means like being prepared, right? Just like a Boy Scout, we got to be prepared. We got to ha- know what we're going to eat, when we're going to eat it and how we're going to eat it. Because if you left that to when you're going to get around to it, what happens is you get too hungry, you blow it off, and then you get the biological imperative, right? So the biggest thing that we need to cultivate to help burn fat now and keep it off, right, to develop that metabolic flexibility is to start to develop these habits, just the first few that I went through, just the easy ones that I went through to help start to create that environment where your body is less inflamed, is you have to get disciplined about it. You have to go ahead and say, hey, damn it, this is important to me. Maybe I'm going to say no to my significant other or the PTA, or I'm going to get up a half hour earlier so I can get whatever it is I want done done before I get ready for work. It's saying I'm going to do what I don't want to do because I want the outcome to happen. So what's really interesting in neuroscience, there's a part of the brain called the anterior median cingulate cortex, right? We have two of them, one on each side. And they've studied a bunch. There's an, there's an anterior and there's a median, right? So front middle, back, and it does different things. But one of the major things that it does is it grows and shrinks according to what's happening in your body. So the larger it is, actually, it's one of the centers for brain memory, focus, those kind of things. The larger it is, the more believed it is to be helpful for you. So what's interesting is they found in studies on humans, not just rats, on humans, that when you do something you don't want to do, right? So let's say, okay, jumping into a cold ice bath in the morning, in the winter, when it's dark out. How many of you really want to do that? I can tell you I don't. Do I do it? Yeah, sometimes, right? I have to work myself up to it. So if that's one of the things I want to do every morning, I don't do it every morning because it actually kind of wears my stress chemistry out. But if I really wanted to get up and do that, that's one of the things I want to do. Every time I go step into that cold plunge, when I don't want to do it, I actually cause that part of my brain to grow. Now, you might say, oh, but Betty, I love doing HIIT exercise, so when I do more of it, I'm causing it to grow. No, 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 no. This only happens when you don't want to do it, right? This is basically the center of willpower. This little thing grows and gets bigger when you exhibit willpower doing something you don't want to do, right? It doesn't have to be physical either. It could be anything. It could be mental, emotional, whatever. So every time I flex that disciplined muscle and I do something that I don't feel like doing, I'm actually increasing that function in my brain. It's self-fulfilling because then we have better willpower because the brain is better adapted to do whatever it is we want to do. But it actually sucks because we have to be disciplined first to then get the motivation to then do it. And some of us genetically are wired to have more motivation without reason, right? So when we talk about DNA testing, there are some patterns in the DNA and there are some people who are patterned that it's very hard for them to commit to something when it doesn't feel good, right? They're the person that'll be on the wagon for about five days and then the weekend comes and then the wheels come off the bus. 
And it's because they're wired to kind of to look for not the, I would say the easy way. They're sort of wired that that's where the brain's going to center on. And it's very hard to pull themselves back. So those are the people that we absolutely pair up with coaches that they have to have ongoing coaching all the time because they have to kind of work against their biology. But all of us, because we're humans, are like that. We don't want to do what we don't want to do, right? So at the end of the day, think of it this way. If you have these things you want to do, and I just went through six ways to start getting body fat, like just to melt off, right? To absolutely melt off. Just fostering these things. It'll take discipline. So what it takes is putting stuff on the calendar. What it takes is rearranging the schedule and maybe getting up earlier or saying no to something or, you know, avoiding one thing to start another thing to allow you to start make those changes and then recognize that it becomes easier and it becomes incremental to add new things on when we start exercising that discipline muscle because it's the stick, not the carrot that causes the brain to grow, right? So it's the discipline and the unpleasantness that actually allows our willpower to become stronger, right? So you have to kind of do it first before you feel motivated, which is often not what you hear. You read all the self-help books and happiness this and blah, 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 and all this other stuff. That's not what we hear, but the reality is the discipline helps you have what you want, but we have to do the discipline when it doesn't feel good, right? Isn't the exciting thing that we want to have. But all you got to do is just do this. Even if you were to do these things for five days, right? If you were to do these things for five days, like consistently, really do them, you would feel different. You would probably notice your pants fitting a little different. You might notice a few pounds coming off on a scale, even if you haven't had a chance to get a DEXA or a BIA. It doesn't take a lot at least to get that first like metabolic shift to help the body become just a little more efficient. These are the basics. These are the basics for fat burning and you can start that this year. All right. Thank you everybody for listening to <laughs> Menopause Mastery. If you found this to be a valuable podcast episode, please share it with a friend. And I beg of you, if you love this episode, you like listening to Menopause Mastery, please subscribe and please leave me a review. Five stars is fabulous. If you have questions or you want to hear certain podcast topics, I'd love to hear that too. I definitely take feedback. I've got a couple coming up in the can that we are going to be playing that are direct feedback from my audience. And I'll be back with you next week on Metapause Mastery. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Menopause Mastery Podcast. You are why I'm here and I am so very grateful. Hit subscribe so you don't miss any wisdom on creating the most exceptional life on our terms. If this episode has helped you in any way, please share it with a friend to spread the love and together we rise. You can follow me on social media at Betty Murray PhD and you can reach me online at BettyMurray.com. 